What do you guys think about themed submissions and themed anthologies? I usually steer clear. Mm. What about you, sir? Uh, I guess it'd probably depend on what the theme is. If it's a theme that I feel comfortable, that I can tell a good enough story. Mm-hmm. But I feel like that kind of kind of uh, might like hamper or kind of you know like handcuff you and what you what you want to try to do. Yeah. I, yeah, I feel I I feel like I, whenever it asks for a theme, I don't want to. That usually means that I have to write something for the journal or whatever it is, and I don't like to do that typically. I did it for Horoscope, um, and I had fun with it, but I still felt like it was it it changed like you said it kind of like chains you to something that you wouldn't actually write if you were like if you didn't have a theme in front of you. See, I kind of like the challenge of it. I was asking because I saw there is a Nirvana themed horror anthology. Mm. So it's like I think they're going with 26 stories that have to be uh, a Nirvana song or based around one of the Nirvana songs. Every entry is you you can only pick one song. So if somebody used the song you're going to use, and yeah. you can't do, you know, so that makes it kind of tricky because. Are you going to have a list for us to know? I don't think so. You just but. pick like some shitty song that nobody likes. That's what I was, <laughs> I was thinking. If I do it, that's what I'm going to do. I was like thinking, I was like, okay, that could be kind of fun. And then I was sitting there thinking of like, I went through the list of the Nirvana songs. Like, how the fuck am I going to come up with a horror story based on yeah. any of these? So I don't, I don't know if I'm going to do that. I sent it to Ashley and he, uh, he's all gung ho about doing it. I think he's already writing it. So I was like, good for you, buddy. I don't know if I can do that because that's a pretty big constraint, I think. That's a weird theme, too. Yeah, like, when I think of horror, I don't think of Nirvana. Yeah. Like, I was I mean, thinking, maybe you could do something with, like, grunge-era punk scene or something, and then have horror, but again, the theme of being one well, of the songs. Yeah, and I'm not that, like, I'm not, like, super familiar with, like, a lot of, like, you know, the the hits and stuff, but, like, yeah. you know, I couldn't just pull some, like, random, like, Nirvana song off of one of their CDs, like you know what I mean. Yeah, that, and just start writing about it. I mean, he does have some obscene lyrics. If you look at like Heart Shaped Box or uh, I don't know, Rape Me. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you could. There are some. There's some stuff in there that you could probably pull some pull pull something horror out of. Well, that particular anthology had some strict guidelines too. They wanted you to put a trigger warning for every trigger inside like that's in your story and i was looking they had a list of examples and it went from abortion miscarriage baby eating like literally anything you could think of that could be triggering or would just go into a like oh slasher murder you'd have to put it's like so what my whole story i'm gonna have a full page of trigger warnings are you really gonna do that that doesn't sound fun and then uh that was also one of those like this is even worse not just like the pro diversity stuff that a lot of these magazines and things go for it and it said it specifically what's the opposite of fat phobic fat uh positive that's yeah. what the exact phrasing was fat positive so it was like what does that mean to be a fat positive author i just thought that was a weird thing mm-hmm. to include you must have obesity so if you're like just some fat white broad you could mm-hmm. submit because well, i mean you can submit any anybody can submit but you, like you'd be preferred because just because you're fat, that's your only identifier that's different than, you know, Native American or Japanese or something that, you know, the diversity stuff. So now fat is a diversity? Well, <laughs> that, that's, what, that's what I'm getting at. It's like, I don't understand how that makes you diverse just because you're overweight. Well, I'm sure. <laughs> What's the line? Is it 50 can, pounds overweight? 100? I can do that, too. 
be fat. I could, I could do it. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, that's what I'm saying. It doesn't. I mean, most people could be fat. That helps me out. I, I'll totally. I can eat. Well, th- well, that's weird because like I'm sure you've seen Caleb the videos of like people saying like you go to the gym. You're fat phobic. phobic. Yeah, I hate that. <laughs> that doesn't mean I'm fat phobic. Just because I don't want to be fat doesn't make me fat phobic. And like I said, where does the where's the line though? Because I'm probably ten or fifteen pounds overweight. Does that make me fat? Yeah. Is, is that what we count? Or we're mm-hmm. talking about obese? It didn't say obese positive. It just said fat positive. I would say anyone who's even worried about that kind of terminology is probably more than just like 200 pounds. Probably big. Yeah. Probably pretty big. Well, you can say, because what you could do is like, unless they want like a picture to go along with it, be like, just go on a bulking session and be like, I'm like three or 240, but I'm just saying it's like a muscle or 240. They don't know, but like. Or what if it was like an old picture and you lost all this weight? And then that's the thing, too. So if you, let's say you got gastric bypass, you were 500 pounds and you were one of those people that dropped to like 150, have all this loose skin, you got to get the surgery, and now you look pretty good. Are we uh, going to hate on that person because now they're fat phobic because they don't oh, want to die that, at 30? That, that person was a fat racist. Or racist, racist against fat. Phobic. Phobic. <laughs> racist it, it requires a race no not anymore it doesn't probably not really actually now that you mention it <laughs> you can be called racist for anything you don't like eating apples you racist like, what does that mean <laughs> so anyway i might submit to that <laughs> <laughs> because they pay 50 bucks yeah well, so, there you go. And I don't imagine there's going to be a lot of submissions for a very specific anthology like that. Ooh. Like, I just don't think, or at least if there are, they're not going to be quality stories. I'm surprised because you'd think that they would have to get, like, the okay from the his estate or something like that yeah. to, to do that, to, you know, to do this. Like Yeah, because they actually use, like, the, oh, they did, uh, it, it was the Nirvana logo. Hold on, let me just bring it up. And by the way, when I was going on, off on the guidelines, like that might just be their general guidelines. Like a lot of these places just have copy and paste guidelines anymore. So I don't think a lot of these anthologies and magazines anymore actually pay a lot of attention to the diversity stuff like that hard. Like they're not asking your weight is basically like, that's not a thing. If it is, then I would never submit to them. You'd think also though, that Taco Bell quarterly uh, would require some kind of clear from uh, the Taco Bell end to do that. They use an old logo. I don't understand how it's legal. Yeah, that's pretty crazy. Have you checked on that submission yet? It's still pending. Or no, it's still in review. Yeah, it's not even. Okay. They actually have a press. Yeah, so see, they did the uh, Nirvana logo, but it's the Negative Creep, which is, I think, one of their songs. Oh, yeah. I don't know if you can see that, Bryce. Oh, yeah. I mean, I guess it's just a font. Right. I mean, you can't really copyright a font that I know of. At least, I don't think you can. I just, like you said, that does seem kind of strange. Like, you won't get in trouble for having... I mean, I guess it'd be... I don't know what law that falls under. Like, not parody, but you're not writing the lyrics of a Nirvana song, but, like, a lot of people are going to include lyrics to a Nirvana yeah. song. I know when Nick Obergon was on his book, Blue Light Yokohama, he had to pay all this money because you can't do that in some countries. Yeah, right. I don't know about the U.S. I think in the U.S. it's more lax. You could have some song lyrics. But if you had, like half a page of the lyrics no you're in trouble so anyway i read the sound in the fury and nobody here wants to hear me talk about that at least right now but last night that gonna stop me from doing it no no, no <laughs> i'm not gonna talk about that no, not right now we'll dedicate a whole episode to that and piss everybody off and i'll make you read it and three years later when you finish yeah. it we'll cover it 
Uh, I last night I watched the James Franco Sound and the Fury movie he made from I think it was 2014. I thought it was actually really good. I mean, they left a lot of stuff out from the book, which obviously you kind of have to. But like the first section, which is Benji, Benji the uh, mentally challenged dude, I thought he did a really good job on that. And he, of course, James Franco's playing playing the mentally challenged yeah. guy. And even <laughs> but you look at him, you're like, no, he nailed it. He did a good job. Uh, but I thought it really helped me understand at least that first chapter better. The second two, because it goes by chapters in the movie as well, but the like they had the other two guys' uh, scenes or whatever, like their little chapters, and it like left way too much out so you wouldn't understand if you read the book and you were like trying to figure out what was going on in the book from the movie. But the first chapter, you can. It, it did a good job of that. So do they do they mess around like with the jumping back and forth? Yeah, that's why it works so so well because you can see it, and it just like the Benji character since he does he doesn't talk, and you're reading it, it just jumps around so much it's hard to follow. But since you see him just like having these memories, it actually works out really well in that medium. So yeah, Bryce, if you ever finish Sound of the Fury, I recommend checking that movie out. You can get it free if you want to watch the commercials. I just bought it for five bucks on uh, Amazon Prime. So mm. why not? So, yeah, I'm, I'm still only like 20 pages in, into that so far. But uh, so the whole thing isn't doesn't have Benji in it. I was under the impression it was all about him. No, the first chapter is Benji. The second is Quentin. The third is Jason. Jason. And the fourth is uh, Dilsey. The first chapter, obviously, is, you know, Benji. It's like nonlinear and it just jumps all over the place. The second chapter, Quentin, is the same thing. But then it does have some like parts that are just like regular narrative and then it jumps around even more uh with more stream of consciousness which is really confusing and then the third and fourth chapter are just uh linear narratives and they're really easy to follow hmm. but i mean okay, the well, characters are all involved in each chapter to some degree but it's the focus yeah the focus the viewpoint yeah. is always from just one of the which is uh also confusing because there's a lot of contradictory viewpoints so the way Quentin or Jason sees something isn't how Benji remembers it. Like the memories are different. Now, are they all? Do they all have like um like a mental disability or just Benji? Just Benji. Uh, the other one, he's a Harvard. Well, he's going to Harvard. He's very intelligent. The third one's a fucking dickhead. Wait till you get to the Jason chapter. He's such a cocksucker. Like oh, and they did a good <laughs> job of making him a dick face in the movie too. He, oh, he's just bad, man. He's just such a ooh. You just wanted to die. Well, speaking of uh, James Franco, did you hear he was, like, canceled or something recently? He got canceled, like, two years ago yeah. or something. Well, this was just this year. I mean, he, he got re-canceled. Something. Maybe he tried to make a comeback, and then he got canceled. I don't know. Yeah, I don't know, but uh, I don't even know what he did. I just heard about that recently. I was Googling something. Yeah, Seth up. Rogen said he won't work with him anymore. Was it, it, the, yeah, like, I read that. Like, like underage act- actresses or, like, young actresses? I think that something? was the first roundabouts of uh, him getting in trouble. The... I forget what he did now. Probably something with texting or... I don't know. We don't need to talk about that because we have a great episode. We're going to talk about death. The plague. The plague. Bleeding from your body parts. So I hope you folks enjoy that after this nice upbeat music. are listening to the Drunken Pen Writing Podcast. I'm your host, Caleb James. 
With me as always, Spencer, the Algerian artichoke auditor church. Auditing artichokes. Got to make sure that those are in line and that does the right amount and stuff like that. Um, Algeria is like a northern African country. Do they grow artichokes there? Where do they grow artichokes? I don't know. Chile? Hopefully not. It'd be easy easy counting. Yeah. Yeah. Your job would be easy. Uh, Joining us today for this special crossover episode, Mr. He's been on the show before, yeah. so he's not, he doesn't get that fancy of an intro. <laughs> Mr. Bryce Yole, and he is the current host of, like I said, a brand new podcast, Arcade Bookshop, which I'm also a member of. Join co-host words, I say them. Co-host. I'm a co-host on the Arcade Bookshop, which will be dropping August 28th, so that is the week after this episode comes out, I believe. So, Bryce, Thanks, before bro. we start this episode, why don't you tell the folks about the new podcast? Got a lot to look forward to. Arcade Bookshop is a podcast about video games and their literary counterparts for everybody who loves to play and to read. Each week we talk about a video game with a cool story. We talk about how it applies to real life if it does. And uh, if it doesn't, we just hang out and have fun with it. And the week after that, we talk about something that we think is a good textual comparison or uh, buddy to the video game. It's like a, It's like a literature class a little bit. Best we can do anyway. I think it's a fun time, and I think it's something everybody should check out if you like DBW. And if you like some obscure games, we also cover those too, and Caleb rants about them for long periods of time. So if you want to see an angry or hear an angry Caleb talk about a game Bryce made him play, uh, you could do that and uh, head on over to Arcade Bookshop. What is the Instagram? Is it Arcade underscore Bookshop? Arcade underscore Bookshop and the... Well, I'll announce it on the I announce it on the podcast, but the uh, the Gmail if you ever want to reach out and talk about or uh, recommend uh, game and book pairings is arcadebookshop at gmail dot com. So there you have it. So definitely follow at arcade underscore bookshop on Instagram, and you can see all the cool posts and the fancy things that Bryce uh, Bryce's wife puts up because he's like me and doesn't like to post shit on social media too much. What was I looking up? Oh, today we are talking about, as you can tell by the title of this episode, The Plague, La Peste. Is it La Peste? That yeah. doesn't sound right, is it? La Peste. That's what I've been hearing. So we are covering The Plague, La Peste, by Albert Camus. So what'd you guys think? Let's just get it out the way. Mm. Out of five whiskey shots, what do you give it, Spencer? I give it about, like, Three, three and a half if we're, if we're allowed to go half these. A little lick. Yeah. Or that third one. I give it a three as well. What about you, Mr. Bryce? I was going to say three and a half. I, I would probably give it a four if uh, if I read it in 2018. <laughs> yeah. 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 That, that helps. That'd probably help. Yeah. We'll get into that, but it definitely probably would have been, I wouldn't say more enjoyable, but we wouldn't have made so many comparisons to real life. <laughs> If we read this before we went through our own pandemic. Yeah. Though there is a distinction because one, the word pandemic, I don't think was invented when this book came out in the 40s, but also it was an epidemic because everyone in this story is pretty calm. Yeah. Despite half their, you know, city dying, they, the people of, what is the name of the town again? Oran. I don't know how you actually say it. but Oran, Algeria. It is not a real place. That's why I always forget it. Camus, he just made it up. But the people in the city who get locked in because there's this big plague, they do not panic. I guess we could do a brief synopsis 
Let me see, actually, see if I can just find it. I forgot my fucking book upstairs, you know? Let me see if I can find a quick synopsis so we don't have to listen to me try to... And then, I think a rat died, and then it bled out of its butthole, <laughs> and then a guy, he died. Uh, let's see. Oh, Wikipedia has the worst synopsises. Oh, that's a cool cover. Why don't we get that cover? That's probably a different oh, yeah. translation. Probably, yeah. It makes me think of... Uh, Actually, that makes me think of somebody taking, like, Molly. It's just a bunch of white pills. In right, thing. yeah. <laughs> All right. So the plague is a haunting tale of human resilience and hope in the face of unrelieved horror. I didn't get hope or resilience, really. I don't think that's the opposite of Camus' message, actually, (laughs) because he's an absurdist. It's all about, like, how everybody is just living to die. So I don't think that message is, I don't think that's right. I think the the main main doctor character, he's kind of hopefulish. He's the only optimistic one, really. I mean, there's a couple, but it's not, maybe the resilience, but not of the human spirit, I don't think. Let me read the rest of this. Maybe we'll clear it up. Albert Camus, I say Albert. Albert Camus, that video we watched, that guy's pronunciation was on point. Right. Like, the character Ryu, like, is, is Ryu or Rue. Well, yeah. I, I can't see either one because he said it with his throat. Yeah. So, yeah. I was like, how are you doing yeah. that? No, that ain't it, Bryce. That ain't it. Yeah, kind of like, you have to be like Benji. But, well, because I, well, I wasn't sure how to pronounce it at first because just looking at it and, and trying to sound it out and with reading all, like, the Japanese uh, novels recently. Yeah, it's I was like, different. like, I was like, is that that's not how I'm thinking? Like, how that should sound? No. So, Albert Camus' iconic novel about an epidemic ravaging the people of a North African coastal town is a classic of 20th century literature. The he won a maybe it wasn't for this. I thought he won a Nobel Prize. Mm, I don't know. And I thought it was for this. Or maybe it was just his body. Of work. I think Nobel's usually the body of work. Oh, I was gonna say I know that they keep the things that I kept on watching and seeing was saying that this is like his best. Yeah, work, which makes me not re- want to read his other stuff now. <laughs> the townspeople of Iran are in the grip of a deadly plague, which condemns its victims to a swift and horrifying death. Fear, isolation, and claustrophobia follow as they are forced into quarantine. Sound familiar? <laughs> Each person responds in their own way to the lethal disease. Some resign themselves to fate, some seek blame, and a few, like Dr. Ryu, resist the terror. An immediate triumph when it was published in 1947, the plague is in part an allegory of France's suffering under the Nazi occupation and a timeless story of bravery and determination against the precariousness of human existence. I've also got some conflicting views on that allegory of World War II and the Nazi occupation. I've read some things that said that he said that wasn't it at all. Yeah. It had nothing to do with that. And he wanted to name the novel. He didn't want it to be about the plague. I mean, the novel's about the plague, but it's really not, I guess. He wanted to be called Prisoners, the Prisoners. Yeah. And then I've read other things where it's they talk about World War II nonstop. So I'm just thinking maybe some scholars and academic folk put the allegory together, and it might have not been Camus himself, or at least he didn't go that detailed. Well, and say, well, how many times have we talked about, like, uh, you know, a writer does, you know, does their story, and then other people put what they want or what they see, yeah, in, into it. I mean, the allegory does fit, but I don't think that's uh, yeah, necessarily. I, I, I wonder that too. It makes sense to me because when I'm like when I like I said to you uh, off air, when I'm when I was reading it, I didn't really. I tried to pick up on that allegory because it like, is on the back of the book and you were telling me about it, but I, it wasn't very obvious to me there. I mean, there are some clear ways that they could, that someone could draw that out. 
but it wasn't like the most obvious Nazi allegory to me. I, and it coming out in like 1947 or whatever. Yeah. Like, I think everybody's looking for that. So it, I, I could very well see that everyone's just like every, every critical person is trying to put Nazi occupation and all, all those themes to every piece of literary work that comes out of that time. Well, it's interesting, though, because after COVID happened, all the people post-COVID that started talking about this book again, nobody mentioned the World War II allegory. No. Like, nobody, okay, we don't care about that, because that's not important now, because now this is relevant to modern times. We were discussing something briefly yesterday, and I can't remember. Oh, we were talking about, after we recorded yesterday, uh, not this podcast, the RK Bookshop podcast, we were talking briefly about this book, and... You mentioned, or I mentioned, I don't remember, how the townsfolk who are in this like severe quarantine and they can't leave the city and stuff was not as extreme as, say, like Italy and a lot of the countries during COVID. Because those people couldn't even go to like the grocery store without like going at a set time and things. Meanwhile, the people in this place, even though they're on quarantine, they're still going to like church and they're still going out to cafes and bars and even though they were getting more and more, um, like the lights would go out, so they had like curfews and stuff. They still were able to go out and live their lives, like they, which is the big theme in this book is uh, the mundane lives they were living. Really didn't change under quarantine, and I felt that because yeah. during COVID, my life didn't change that much. I could go to less places, but honestly, my life did not really change that much, and it made me think, just like this book. Oh, are we just living to die? Are we just living every day just to go to work and come home and eat and go to sleep? Well, I think what, like, some of that is, like, oh, because, like, you know, in the story, it's just, like, this small area, you know, it's this one city, you know, to to where with COVID, it was a global thing, mm-hmm. because, well, because they were towards the end, like, the characters would get uh, quarantined, and they, they would get put into, like, their own place, and they couldn't go, like, yeah. you know, like, the town was, like, you know, not walled off, but it was, like, the wall, the the city itself was quarantined from the rest of the area, but also within that city, once the the plague was really you know in full swing, they did quarantine other smaller groups of people. Because like, yeah, you if you were the, sick, you had to go somewhere. Like, you could be with your family. Like, and I'm sure we'll get to it later. But like with the uh, the one part with like that with the kid, yeah, and stuff like that. So well, yeah, the themes of loneliness and isolation definitely come through in this book, and that's probably what. Like Bryce was saying, how he wished he would have read this in 2018. Yeah. That's probably what hit the hardest for a lot of people if they go back and read this book. It's like, ah, oh, man, I don't want to relive that shit. Though, could you imagine they're reading this like, like even like a year before uh, before COVID happened, and like it was still fresh enough in your mind? And you're just like, oh no, yeah. <laughs> like, just like, oh no. What's yeah, and I I actually made a note about how it's it's interesting how. For most people who read this at like any other time in history, you would be uh, there's so much drama in this book in reality that I think we kind of just didn't really care about going like it for me. The book that had, you know, it had a pulse, but it was very like just straight through for the most part. But if you read this before the, the before what we experienced, you would probably be intrigued at how an epidemic actually pans out and like nervous about the characters, how they'll get through what they're going through, who's going to get through it, who won't, if the main character is going to last through the end of the book, uh, what's going to come with the city, uh, how is it going to spread, all that stuff. 
but reading it now it was like it was like i know exactly what's going to happen yeah from point a to point z <laughs> like there's no urgency there's no dread because we experienced the dread already and this is only an epidemic and uh, a pandemic a pan- pandemic is far more uh, uh it spreads far you know larger and further than uh, an epidemic um uh, even it, the book just felt mellow to me and it probably helped that i was just laying down uh donating plasma when i was reading it but <laughs> <laughs> but uh it it really it felt like a relaxing book uh and partly because Ryu was he i think he just was very objective the whole entire time you didn't see a lot of emotion from him but like the only real difference that i felt that was dramatic to me was the fact that it's an actual like uh ancestor of a pl- of the plague and you you got like bubos from it which we didn't obviously experience which sound disgusting but but yeah overall my point is just you know you don't get the same feeling out of it that you probably would have if we didn't experience what we did well this book also i don't know if it was just the time period or the location probably both it was the exact opposite of the modern U.S.'s approach to COVID because in this story, when the plague takes off and stuff, people are volunteering to help their fellow man and they're helping each other and everyone's kind of worried, but it's more of like, oh, you know, we'll be okay though. Like somebody get the plague over, but it will be all right. And it was just more of like, uh, like you said, kind of relaxed, but like nervousness. Uh, but in the U.S., like when COVID happened, probably worldwide for the most part, but like you had a lot of selfishness. Everyone bought up all the toilet paper and everyone was like, fuck that guy. I don't care if he dies of COVID. I'm not getting it. Like everyone was very selfish. And I didn't like who was volunteering to, you know, help COVID shelters or anything. Not many people. But in this, you know, in this book, they actually had like task force where people would volunteer, even if it meant not doing their regular jobs and Everyone seemed to care about their at least their little part of the city because you know there were separate parts of the city, but they're like to break down the actual book a little bit. Well, I was gonna say real quick. I was gonna say I think how we're talking about the time of what we're reading this. I think that also had an effect on like my rating of the book. Yeah, because as like that, because I think that's what because like there was parts of the of it where it took me a while to kind of get through because I think it was just kind of like again I kind of know what this is like. Uh huh. I don't want to read about it again, yeah. especially being handled in a way better way. Like, you know what I mean? Like, so I think like that also had, I'd probably be closer to probably like to a four, probably if, you know, read it at a different time. Well, it shows you the difference mm-hmm. between an epidemic and a pandemic too, because the pandemic is the panic side. Yeah. That's what we all had where some people were like, yeah, it's nothing. And then other people were way too freaked out. And then you had like most of us, which were just in the middle was like, I mean, I'll wear a mask if I have to. Could I just get my groceries and go home? Like, why do I have to, you know, disinfect my whole body and get anal probed and all this shit? That's a little too much. Or why can't I go to this bookstore that is, you know, two years past COVID and I still have to wear a fucking mask and be all clean? Like, I think we could be done with it. <laughs> shit like that gets annoying. But going into, like, actually break down the, the story in the book a little bit, for the entire book until you get to the end, you just have a narrator and you, you know, uh, unnamed narrator, unnamed narrator who just is telling you pretty much the facts. So you have Ryu, who's the doctor, and he 
he's probably I guess he's the hero of this, but he's a very even individual. Like he doesn't get emotional. He doesn't freak out. His wife just left to go uh, get treatment somewhere for something that was wrong with her. I don't think it actually said. Uh, I'm assuming consumption or tuberculosis read, or something. Yeah, I read it was probably tuberculosis. Yeah. Uh, then uh, Some she, woman disease. Uh, because like back then, it's just like woman disease. <laughs> woman disease. She got the vapors. Just send her off. But uh, she, So she left right before the plague hit. Uh, but the first thing that happened... A lot of rats were just coming up, like way too many rats. Like all the rats in the city uh, were just coming up, bleeding out of their face and dying. Everyone was like, what the fuck? To the point where we had task force coming and scooping up the rats and burning them every day, thousands of them. People were like, well, this is weird. And then eventually you run out of the rats. And uh, then you have the first victim, which is the concierge at the, I think it's the hotel that, is Ryu staying at the hotel? Or is he just, uh, I think he's staying there, right? I was a little confused yeah. on his living situation, but the, was his mom's also there. Yeah. And the concierge that he sees every day, he gets sick and then he gets like his lymph nodes, I think. Uh, or you said, was it bulbous or something? Bulba. Bubos. Bubos. Uh, like the bubonic plague. Yeah. You get like these big swellings and they're like rock hard and sometimes you could drain them. Sometimes you can't. Basically, you die a horrible bloody death like the bubonic plague kind of. And then the plague eventually also... Uh, Switches to a, like a pneumonia style plague, like a lung, a pulmonary plague. It's it's a bad disease, but it starts off slow and everyone's just like, oh, that's not good. And they keep spreading and you get through these people's everyday lives. Like uh, Camus really does a good job of touching on like how mundane most people's lives are and then how they change when something like this happens, but then also don't. It's 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 strange. So like you have one character... At the beginning, he's really weird. He likes to spit on cats. So he goes on his ba- old man. He goes to his balcony. And I think he just throws like shredded paper and all the alley cats come over. And he just spits on them. And this is the thing they do every day. I don't know why the cats like it. Um, no but, wonder disease is spreading everywhere. Yeah. But I forget if they just went around and killed all the cats or I think it's something bad like that. Uh, but one day he comes out and there's no cats there. And then he's just like, oh, and then he's, first he's like, what happened? He's sad. And then he gets he goes through all the stages, grief, anger. Uh, then eventually he just doesn't come back out. You have one character he takes up to like counting peas or lentils or something stupid. And then uh, the one interesting character is Katard. He was like a criminal where he did something illegal and the cops were kind of after him. And he was very nervous. But then when the plague hit, all of a sudden nobody gave a shit. So he wasn't just like happy because everyone else is like, now everyone's feeling the anxiousness that he had this whole time. But he also got to uh, like kind of be free. And then he starts making money because I think he's doing more illegal mm-hmm. shit. So he's the only one that's actually like happy during the plague. Like he's ha- he, w- he doesn't want the plague to end. Speaking of him, I think the whole reason that the cops were after him was because he attempted suicide. He, com- uh, he attempted that, yeah. suicide because he did something criminal first, I think. It explains it near did the it? end. Yeah, he did something uh, and he committed suicide because he thought they were coming after him. And then uh, I forget what, because in the end he goes crazy. Like he has a shootout with the cops and stuff. Yeah, I, I forget. There was parts of this book where I'm not going to lie. I kind of just zoned out because it went into like a lot of abstraction philosophy and things I didn't care about. And then just some of the stuff was kind of boring. But it probably took me a good half of the book before I cemented the characters. Yeah. Because we have another one, uh, John or Gene Tarot or Taru. He mm-hmm. is also a narrator. It's not him narrating, but it's like letters. I guess he kept track of everything that was going on, and he was uh, 
like he wasn't emotional either, really. So it would have these switches from the narrator to talking about this guy. And sometimes I wasn't paying attention when the yeah. switch happened. I'm like, what? Who's talking now? Why? What is this? What's the point of this? The the character I liked the most was uh, Rombear. He was a reporter, like a journalist who was just visiting the city. I forget what he was covering, but uh, when the plague hit, he couldn't leave. And he had like a, a woman, uh, I forget if he was going to get married or was married, but he had to get out. He wanted to go see her. He didn't want to be there. And he, he so a, the most interesting to me chunk of the book was him trying to get out of the city, mm-hmm. coming up with all these annoying ass ways to get out of the city and they keep falling apart. Much like when we dealt with COVID, like you kept trying to, these different things and then you like, you know, you'd see the sun for a minute and you'd be like, okay, things are clearing up and then the clouds come again. It's like, yeah, man, every time we think we're out of this fucking thing, you know, more COVID, more fucking plague. Uh, So he wasn't able to get out, but then he ends up accepting his stance in life and becomes a part of the volunteers that help the the plague victims. And then, funny enough, when he does get the chance to leave, he doesn't want to. Mm -hmm. So there's like some interesting things you could discuss with that, but uh, we end up going to Taro again, who he, him and Ryu get close. Uh, there's a weird swimming scene with them, which I, I, no one was allowed to go in the sea. So I don't know. I think they just did it, just did it. Like nobody stopped them, but they're pretty much like the guys in charge of everything now because, uh, they're the only like real, like doctor. Well, I don't think Taro's a doctor, but I sort he, of got the impression that they let them go in the sea Yeah, uh, because of who they are. And that was an example of like it actually does matter of like your class and your place, your your status. That's what I felt, yeah, because they were like the top guys right during the plague. And then uh you know, big spoiler alert, uh right when the plague clears up, fucking Tarot dies of the plague. Yeah. Like, he's like one of the last <laughs> victims. Yeah. Uh and but there's like that's a really good scene. There's a scene before that that's actually pretty heart wrenching. Uh the magistrate, I believe. He, who's setting all these rules and laws that a lot of people are getting pissed off about. He, uh, his son gets the plague. And by this time they have like these big tent camps up and stuff. So Ryu's working on the sun. They had, they already developed a serum and I think it's just starting. Like they finally got one that's starting to work a little bit. Like the, so they're hopeful they give it to the kid. And you just have this long drawn out scene of this kid fighting and fighting. And then ultimately he dies. And then the same thing happens to, uh, Taru. he, fights and fights like hell and another long drawn out scene and you by this time you like him so you don't want him to die and he does and then you also you guys might have to help me with the name because i forget it uh it's like paralu or something like that the uh, uh priest yeah he's the Pan- bad guy panato panato or something like that yeah panato yeah so it ends with an x and it starts with a p that's all we need to know yeah uh for, <laughs> for purposes of this panato he uh was a fucking asshole I yeah say so basically, the plague was because of sinners and sin and, you know, depravity and shit like that. Just one of those guys. And, and doesn't he end up dying from the plague? I hope so. I don't mm-hmm. remember. Yeah, he does. Good. Yeah, he gets his comeuppance. <laughs> I mean, he's but he's as close as to, to a bad guy you get in this situation. But, like, this whole story is just pretty much like, what if you're just your neighbors and your friends all of a sudden got roped into this weird situation well, where we couldn't leave and there was a big disease or something? Well, again, with COVID, like, just the, all the parallels with COVID, it, it shows all, like, what the human condition, like, what they can adapt to. And turn into ordinary after a while, like you know. Yeah, like you, well, that also goes with the World War Two allegory. Is just 
you could normalize anything mm-hmm. really. Any situation humans can adapt to and normalize, and it's just like that's not right. Probably shouldn't mm-hmm. have to do that, but we do. Well, you were talking about the scene with the the boy dying, and that is like that's probably the only scene that makes you feel. I mean that that and Taru dying. I mean that because you you end up really liking his character, but you don't really know that boy. So the only reason you feel bad is because he's a kid, which is a valid reason to feel bad about it. But I I don't know the actual number, but by the end of the book, isn't it only like in the hundreds, the the death count? No, there was up to like six to 700 people a day dying at one point. Yeah. Oh, was that it? Okay. Yeah, yeah, because the the, the funeral or the the, uh, cemeteries got filled and they were just burning bodies. Yeah. That's right. It was was so many hundred a day. But still, I think it just... it just goes to show, like, even even with that number, because it was a few hundred a day over the course of, like, 10 months or something. Mm-hmm. And you, you just, yeah, it makes me think of the rate and the variety of manners that we are desensitized as, as humanity nowadays. Like, even the fact that, like, even, even when it comes to uh, numbers, like we we have it in our heads somewhere that there were like millions and millions of people that died from COVID. So having that to compare with this book is just another way that we can look at it and be like, eh, that's not that big of a deal. <laughs> yeah, I forget how many people they said lived in the city, but it, it was like compared to what we have now in just even a small city. We're like, no, that's nothing. So even if it was like 20,000 people dying, we're like, okay, well, we get that yeah. in an earthquake, you know? Yeah. But that's just like how fucked up society has become now because, no, that's a trap. Like, that's horrible that you would have that many people die. Um, there was one more character we didn't mention that I enjoyed uh, because he was weird. It was Grand, the guy who uh, had to write the perfect sentence. Yeah. So he ends up like writing, I think he's trying to write a book. And his wife ends up leaving him because he's just so obsessed, but he only he can't get past the first sentence. And he just re- rewrites it in like a bunch of ways that are all good. And you're like, just what are you doing? Just say, you know, do the sentence. And he ends up getting the plague and he wants to write a letter to his wife. And I don't think he ever even writes the letter because no. he can't make it perfect. And uh, I, I forget what that was supposed to signify. I looked it up, but. I just I thought that you know the character was interesting because he seemed like such a nice old man though. That might just be Camus, just like little like more of the absurdism uh, I think. Oh, and just even just on yeah. like the uh, the right of you know of being like a writer of like you know because I'm sure he's probably had to deal with that yeah. himself of like you know trying to write that perfect sentence like every you know every writer does and you just gotta get past it. Right. It's probably it's probably like talking about himself a little bit there too. I mean. I don't know what kind of writer he was, but I would imagine if he's talking about that, he's probably maybe he's struggling to write the plague and he's and he's yeah. trying to get get the characters right in all the best ways and he's just doing it over and over and over again. I don't know, maybe I'm wrong, but this that's that's what I drew from it a little bit. The scene where he is writing the sentences over and over does come off almost personal. Like from experience, like you could see how yeah. someone be like, oh, because I've done it myself where it's like, maybe if I just switch these words, maybe if I cut this off and then add this, you know what? I keep I, I use the same word twice in this sentence. Let me just cut that. I, I like that scene. I just thought it was interesting. Let's uh, since we're already at 41 minutes, let's get on to the allegories, though. This is the big one, you know, especially at the World War Two, because like I said, I see I've been reading a lot of like critical analysis of this but i haven't actually found anything of camu saying that the, this was a valid allegory so i don't know but i was able to find this uh 
This is from The Conversation. They uh, actually, I just heard about them today on the Reading McCarthy podcast I listened to. They're doing a tribute episode, and some of the people that were uh, writing tributes to them uh, were published here. So it must be legit, because they're all scholars. So there are multiple allegories. Camus' prescient account of life under conditions of an epidemic works on different levels. The plague is a transparent allegory of the Nazi occupation of France beginning in spring 1940. The sanitary teams reflect Camus' experiences in and admiration for the resistance against the brown plague of fascism. Fascism. I don't know why I said fast. Fascism. <laughs> so, uh, so before we even move on, do you guys really feel that this was an... Because when I was reading, just because I read the back matter of the book, I kept in mind the World War II allegory. So whenever you use the word prisoners, I was thinking of like the occupation... But after finishing it, I really didn't think it was like if it was there, like it was there in the imagery, but I didn't think it was that strong. Yeah, I'd, I didn't really get that uh, too much. It's kind of like one of those things. It's almost kind of like with the stranger, like the guy's like, it seems like he's autistic. Well, obviously he wasn't autistic because back then they, that they wasn't know, a thing. Yeah. But if you line it up to that, like, oh, yeah, that makes sense. You can make it, it fit, fit, but that doesn't it, mean it, it was. Well, yeah. Yeah, I there there are numerous instances like you talked about people just getting used to the isolation and all the changes and things and just humanity being that like versatile or you know able to change. And the only other thing that was that seemed very Nazi-ish to me was putting all the bodies on the trains uh to transport them to get taken care of. But, but like I I would I would say that i don't think it was if because if i read this and didn't know that i definitely wouldn't think twice about that it seems to me that it's more it fit more with a plague his, like you yeah. know like if there was a plague and the city was shut down it kind of fits like that's how you would treat it like you wouldn't yeah, you wouldn't just but, be like all willy-nilly just let people do whatever they want right and i so overall i just think i, I it seems more like another way to serve his agenda of talking about absurd absurdism and existentialism because that fits very well in every aspect. Well, let's let's see if they have some decent reasoning for this that we just overlook. Camus' title also evokes the ways the Nazis characterized those they targeted for extermination as a pestilence. The shadow of the then still recent Holocaust darkens the plague's pages. Didn't feel Holocaust at it all. Seems. I mean, I guess the only Holocausty thing, like is you said, like, the it, bodies and yeah, stuff. Yeah, it's like the mass graves when when they, it was really kicking in. But but mm-hmm. Camus studied all the different plagues that yeah. you know uh, happened before you know his imaginary one. So like he was just kind of referring to how they handled it. You know, carting off bodies and stuff. Mm-hmm. That doesn't. Again, that's not just. Ho- I mean, you could, if you really want to, you could say, yeah, that's Holocaust imagery. But I didn't feel like it was. When death rates become so great that individual burials are no longer possible, as in scenes we are already seeing, the Oranes dig collective graves into which, uh, here's a quote from it, the naked, somewhat contorted bodies were slid into a pit almost side by side, then covered with a layer of quicklime and another of earth, so as to leave space for sub- subsequent consignments. So again, though, like if you just have you know mass genocide or giant plague, or just a big war, you tend to have bodies in a pit. That doesn't necessarily mean the imagery lines up as a you know an allegory to me. But I mean, I could see it. But I don't. I think people are maybe reading a little too much into that. Mm-hmm. 
again, so far this hasn't mentioned Camus' actual, you know, thoughts on the matter. I'm sure somebody asked him. I would hope so anyway. Uh, when the measure, well, you know what, before I get on, that's another thing too, because we were talking about like how everybody likes to see things from, you know, post-World War II, everyone likes to see, oh, this was about World War II, it's an allegory in different works. Well, directly after World War II, a lot of people did not want to see stuff like that. Yeah. Because, like how we are talking about, oh, we don't fucking want to talk about COVID and think about COVID shit right now. I don't care if this book's an allegory about COVID. I'm not, I don't want to think about that. So a lot of times during World War II era, like post-World War II, people weren't necessarily looking for World War II allegories. Like how they say, uh, like The Hobbit and the, well, not The Hobbit mainly, um, how the Lord of the Rings is an allegory for World War One, and Tolkien's like, no, it's fucking not. I don't like World War One. I. I don't want to talk about it. I was in it, but this book is not about it at all. It's guys throwing a ring in a fucking fire. So I just think it's funny that people look so hard into this stuff. Just why? Maybe it it's makes it more like, interesting for them. I don't know. You can actually look in the book about this too, because he thought uh, the narrator talks about how everyone is including himself, obviously, is wanting to write and express themselves about the experience of isolation. And and that immediately reminded me of how as soon as, I mean, granted, I only started writing again last year, but as soon as I started writing and looking at a submitting and stuff, everyone is already over, like all the, all the literary journals and everything, they're already over the COVID talk. They're, they're like, we've received so much shit about this, we're done. But then, even, even when they uh, say that, they still publish that kind of crap. But but yeah, to your point, people get sick of it real fast. They don't want to hear about it anymore as soon as it's remotely over. Yeah, maybe like 10 or 15 years past, yeah. people will start looking back. And a lot of times it's people that didn't actually experience it firsthand or were young mm-hmm. and didn't really live through it or work through it. And then and that's when you get like the, like how World War II is so romanticized. Like it's not romantic, it's awful. Yeah. It was a horrible thing. So COVID will be like that. People will be romanticizing COVID in the movies and stuff in the future. Like, no, uh, they, they already do that about like 9-11. It's like people that weren't even born yet are talking, they, you know, they're in like their early 20s, not like, you know, maybe 23 or something. So like, you know, if they, if they start making movies and writing books and stuff about 9-11, it would be this weird viewpoint that was like, that's not how it was. <laughs> yeah. I'd imagine World War, people that actually fought in World War II hated all the shit that came out. Like, you all right there? <coughs> Sorry. <coughs> it's what the mute button's for. That's what I do when I'm choking to death. <coughs> <coughs> Somehow that made it louder. <laughs> what did you press? What, really? Yeah. I turned my channel off. You don't have a mute button? No. You sure you're using your mixer properly? I turned my channel off. I don't know. Did nothing. <coughs> All right, I'm almost done. Hold on. <clears throat> you done? I'm done. So we continue with this. When this measure fails to keep up with the weight of these consignments, as with the genocidal actions of the Eisenstruppenpuven, I don't know how to say that word. Um, Eisenstocken, you know German. E I N Z A T S G R U P P N. Did he fucking mute himself now? There's no fucking way he muted himself now. <laughs> All right, I'm good. We're good now. <laughs> what the fuck? How did you meet yourself post? Okay, so you said you said you could hear me after I turned my channel off. So I thought maybe I'm recording through this laptop because I couldn't be recording through that laptop because I'm 
doesn't make any sense. So I, I muted myself on Google on the or on my Chromebook. Okay. So I, uh, yes, that's what happened. But um, <laughs> I couldn't tell what you uh spelled out there. It was too many letters. Uh, it doesn't matter. Says <laughs> <laughs> head flap. Anyone saying anything? <laughs> All right. So yeah, the the Eisengarten Gruppen. Uh, the old crematorium, crematorium east of town is repurposed. Closed streetcars filled with the dead uh, are soon rattling along the old coastal t- tram line. Thereafter, when a strong wind was blowing, a faint, sickly odor coming from the east reminded them that they were living under a new order and that the plague fires were taking their nightly toll. So now, I guess, the burning of the bodies, they're, you know, equating with the... Uh, like the Holocaust, the uh, the burning of the bodies, you know the the uh, smokestacks and shit. Uh, Kami's plague is also a metaphor for the force of what Doctor Ryu calls abstraction in our lives. This is where I checked out of the book for a while. <laughs> yeah, he kept talking about abstraction. I was like, oh, I don't care. Uh, so maybe this will uh, enrich our lives a little bit. All those. So this is what abstraction apparently is. All those interpersonal rules and processes which can make human beings statistics to be treated by governments with all the inhumanity characterizing epidemics we kind of talked about that already actually about just the uh being a number instead of an actual person uh so when you have a plague like this go on uh, and people are dying in mass eventually they stop being people and they're just a statistic so for this reason the enigmatic character taru identifies the plague with people's propensity to rationalize killing others for philosophical philosophical why can't i say that word Philosophical. 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 Thank you, Bryce. Uh, killing others for philosophical, religious, or ideal ideological causes. It is with this sense of plague in mind that the final words of the novel warn that the plague. I can't, still can't say this word. Bacillus. The guy in the video, I swear, said T like Bacillus. Maybe. How do you spell it? B a c i l l u s. Bacillus. Bacillus. But the guy definitely with the French accent said it with the T. And I was like, that doesn't sound right. Well, it's probably because he's French. I don't know. He is French. I don't think he was French. I think he was just good at French. He could have been terrible, actually. How would we know? That the plague bacillus never dies or disappears for good. That it can lie dormant for years and years in furniture and linen chests. That it bides its time in bedrooms, cellars, trunks, and bookshelves. And that perhaps the day would come when, for the bane and the enlightening of men, it would rouse up its rats again and send them forth to die in a happy city. That's the part that I didn't like. <laughs> At the end, like, the I, was like, I was like, oh, that happened. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, and then it goes on about hope and all this other stuff. But it doesn't go on anymore about uh, World War II. So I think that was very surface-level allegory if it's there. Yeah. I didn't think it was too deep, like people bring it up. Because if it was, I don't think... Kimu, like I think he would have had a harder stance on it if it was true. You know, I think he would have been able to find some interviews where he really talked about it. One last thing I, I want to bring up while we're talking about just Camry the guy. He, the, at least in the videos that we watch, like I watched him, he seemed like a pretty cool guy. He was yeah, always, he, he was like a uh, like good-looking dude. Always had like a like a hand-rolled cigarette in his hanging out on his lip. Yeah, you know, he seemed like a pretty cool guy. Like, well, he was an absurdist. He didn't take life seriously. He thinks he's one of those guys that thinks that the people who take life seriously are hilarious. <clears throat> and I could get behind that. Yeah, right. Because we all die in the end. We all poop. Like, we're not that special. But people act like they are. They act like they don't poop. They act like they'll never die. They live... It, a lot of people, it's weird. They live like they're never going to die, 
but then they don't actually do any living in between right. being born and dying. So the, the things that they hold as important, yeah, are stupid as shit. And it's like you know you're gonna die one day. Maybe actually do some shit that's worthwhile instead of just complaining and focusing on this mundane nonsense that nobody cares about. Which is Speaking what the characters which, in this book did. Did uh, have you guys seen the uh, looked up anything about? What Camu said about the three responses to the absurdity of life. Mm, I don't think so. No. So that came up for me. So his three responses are suicide, intellectual suicide, or denial, or like like uh, burying your head in the sand, or acceptance of the absurdity and revolting by your existence. Mm. So basically, and that that's you know that's obviously the one that he agrees with. Suicide is just giving up. Um, being selfish. Intellectual suicide is living, but living as if you've given up and not pay, not doing your part and paying attention to things, pretending they're not there. That's most and, people. Yeah. Right. So his, his philosophy is to accept the absurdity, work through it, and I think that's why Ryu is his main character because he's not uh, he's not giving up. He's not quitting. He's not you know he's not Katard who wanted to kill himself. But he's doing his job every day, and it fulfills him. And and he uh, he doesn't take sides either. He works for the government and against it the whole throughout the whole book. I don't know. It's interesting how he. I, I think he illustrated that all three of those things in different characters. Yeah, I, I I did think it was interesting how the book really shows you how even though such tr- like drastic changes to people's daily lives can happen they'll still do the same shit that they always do if they can manage it. Mm-hmm. And like I was saying earlier, you know, during COVID, my life, like I know like Bryce, you know, you couldn't go to the office anymore. You had to work from home. But me and you, yeah. like maybe you had more, you, at your work, you had more procedures to go through, but other than, and the hours changed, but right. that was like it. For me, nothing changed other than I had to wear a mask everywhere I went. Right. And like, it was harder to get into hospitals and banks and shit. But I was just affected by other people being affected. But personally, my life didn't really change. Right. Actually, during COVID, I had a great time. I bought a house. Yeah. <laughs> I got married. Like Everything was going gangbusters for Caleb. Made a lot of money. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Fucking fuck you, COVID. I did get COVID and almost died. But other than that, <laughs> other than that part, it was pretty cool. <laughs> I did. I love the part in the book where they, they briefly talk about masks. And uh, like, the first time they come in, uh, they're like, I think Ron Bear is like, will these actually do anything? And they're like, no, it makes everyone else feel better. <laughs> yeah, that was, yeah, I thought that was interesting. It was like, oh man, even in the 40s, they were like, fuck yeah. this But then that was actually because during the Spanish flu, uh, during like World War One, they actually did do a mask mandate. And a lot of people were like, fuck the mask. So that's that never changed. People just will never want to wear a mask. Mm-hmm. Um, no, nobody, nobody just ever wants to do the thing that they're told to do. Yeah, that can help yeah. out. Well, the thing is too, like if you go with the mask, it was never like a mask that would actually be effective. 
No. Like you're wearing the same like I wore the same shitty surgical mask yeah. until it broke every day. It's like that's not that's probably making me sicker. Uh, people wearing bandanas that are barely covering the the front of their faces. Just fishnet. Yeah. Like just fucking fucking off now. Now we're just like that's when the absurdism really came about with COVID is just like you'd see people just wearing a lampshade on their head. Yeah. A fishbowl, an astronaut helmet, like just <laughs> stupid as shit. Like, does this count? Does it panties? It's like, come on. It's like the absurdism, and it's like, are they actually being serious? Or are they making that, a statement? That's a, a good point, actually, because I like living through it. I felt like it. It it felt Nazi-ish to me. Like, yeah, the, especially like the, I saw it most in terms of how they forced store employees to act towards strangers who were just shopping. There were multiple occasions where we went in, and maybe our masks fell down a little bit, and they started yelling at us. <laughs> And it, it was just insane. I it happened it happened to us in I think Target, Trader Joe's, and Whole Foods. And they would stand there until you pulled your fucking mask up. And it was it was just it, it felt very like uh, I don't know. It it it, it felt I, I kept thinking of how they all seemed like Nazis. <laughs> See, I had it from the other way around where customers would be getting on us for not right, right where like if it, while we were working, if it would slip down a little bit or something, that like. You know the the the, the customers would be like, they're not wearing the mask to get managers get them. Like when it got really surreal was when the employee would come up to you like, hey, I don't want to do this because I think it's stupid, but you ha- you gotta wear the mask, you gotta put it on, and it's just like, ah, oh. it's like then you almost feel bad. It's like. Yeah. This poor schlub is just like you're talking about Nazis. This is the guy on the bottom. Yeah. This is the guy's like he doesn't want to be a Nazi. No, he just don't want his family to get killed. Yeah, he just, he's like, like oh, I just gotta fucking thing. do it. He just trying to yeah, survive. That, that's one thing. I I don't mind that when they're like I don't know whatever. It's it's when they're like they feel like they're righteous about it, and that bothers me because you don't know. None of us know. Like like enforce your rules, but don't be a dick. Yeah, there's a lot of. Uh, it gave people who never had power in their life power, oh, even yeah. if it's the most minute thing. Because I've seen videos of like store employees like chasing people out to their car. Yeah, I got a mask. Get the fuck out of here! And it's like, dude, you're like a cashier that makes yeah. minimum wage. Why do you care at <laughs> all? Like, Seriously, if it just like it's it's crazy that the amount of power people could take from the stupid just the fact that they could tell somebody to do something and they have to do it. It's like this thing just flips, like this switch in them. It's like, yeah, I'm the fucking man now. Listen to me, bitch. Like, it's like, why do you want to be like that, though? Like, I I would be more of one of the people in Algeria who's just like, hey, I don't want you to feel bad either, man. Like, you know, if you don't want to wear the mask, I don't care. I'll wear my mask. Like, but fucking so many people go on these power trips and they don't give a shit about their fellow man like they're not doing it because they care about them dying or getting sick or even getting other people sick they just want them to do what they say well then i think some of us are too like hey they're getting on me about me wearing my mask so i'm gonna get fucking on you but you wearing your goddamn mask if i gotta fucking suffer <laughs> you gotta suffer till the end it's like no why that's that's stupid so i thought the plague was Better if we read it before the plague happened, <laughs> <laughs> yep. or, or later, later, later after the plague happened. I did not realize it was going to be an exact replay of COVID without technology. <laughs> yeah, which makes it horrible. Think about like being locked up during COVID, but you, there's no TV, yeah. there's no video games, there's no cell phones, no, no internet. internet. N- music's like a shitty gramophone that has one song. 
you you might have books, but like you're there for so long, there's a good chance you could literally read everything that's in your town. And all the books at the time are probably like Shakespeare and stuff because there's not too many modern novels at the time. I mean, by the 40s, I guess you can get some decent ones, but still, it's like, okay, I'm going to read James Joyce for the under time mm. because this is in Algeria. This isn't America where True, they just yeah. had like fucking pulp books and stuff. They had uh, French you well, you remember, their quarantine was only like 10 months, whereas ours was, I mean, I don't know how long was ours. I think ours was at least two years. I don't know. We never had a full quarantine in this country. I think maybe like some well, cities did. Yeah. Uh, we had the, the mandates were only lifted like six months ago. Yeah, the mandates, but a lot of people didn't follow us anyway. But yeah. uh, you know what? I'm not even going to go into like yeah. shutting down businesses and ruining people's livelihoods over that shit because that was really aggravating. But I like to go back to like places like Italy where they have high elderly populations. So they were so strict, like, you couldn't leave your apartment. It's like, wow. But we also had the stupid shit in this country. It was like, well, if we're not going to have people work, we kind of have to pay them. Well, let's wait, like, a year until they're, like, bankrupt and fucking poor and dying and, you know, starving to death. And then we'll give them, like, a thousand bucks. Mm. <laughs> it's like, that was fucking stupid. Thanks. Thanks, uh, government. So, in summation, don't get the plague and you'll be aight. Aight. You'll be aight. Next time we'll cover a better book, I think. No, it's a bad book. I recommend people read it. It's just it, it, it's written very well, and and all the, and all that. It's just also oh, we probably shouldn't mention the translation we were reading. Uh, I already forget the lady's name, and I'm my copy of the book. Laura Maris. Laura Maris this is a new translation. It's supposed to be more exciting. So if this was the exciting version, oh my god, yeah. <laughs> but needless to say, after reading this, I was really excited to read like the Sound and the Fury and stuff because it was like something different was happening. You know, yeah. book. Also reads a little mundane, just like the uh, characters and their lives. Anyway, Bryce, why don't you go ahead and give uh, the people a refresher about the other podcasts we do, and then I'll do our proper outro. Everybody listen to Arcade Bookshop, coming out uh, August 28th. What's the, the first episode? First episode is going to be about Earthbound, and we're, re- we're actually releasing two episodes the first day. So Earthbound and Something Wicked This Way Comes by Ray Bradbury. Exciting. We're going to talk about the stories of Earthbound, some of the gameplay, and then we're going to tear apart Something Wicked This Way Comes. Spooky classic. And uh, after that, you can hear us every other Monday, and you can can follow us at arcade underscore bookshop or reach us at Gmail at arcadebookshop at gmail.com and let us know what you think or give us some recommendations. Very nice. Uh, you can follow us at DPW Podcast on Facebook, Twitter, slash X, uh, YouTube, and Instagram. And Spencer, if you really want to see his OnlyFans, you can go to, what the fuck were you again? The Algerian Artichoke Auditor mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Church. Nope, just a lot of counting. A lot of counting of artichokes. Making sure they're in line, making sure yeah. people aren't stealing them. Right. Artichokes, I don't mind them. Like, I could eat some of them, but I'm not a big artichoke guy. Like, it's not my go-to. Also, if you want to see what I'm up to and who's rejected me recently, I don't post my rejections on my website, but I probably should just for fun. Yeah. Uh, CalebJamesK.com. I do have stuff coming out. I promise it. Just fucking, you got to wait, man. Everything you got to wait for. I have something coming out that's going to be pretty big, and that's supposed to be starting up soon, so keep an eye or ear out for that. Uh, Anyway, we thank you for listening, and we will check you next week.